You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Hi everybody, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. The Saturday before the start of 3CR's online campaign for donations to keep the station on air for another year. It all starts on Monday and runs through June. If you go to 3cr.org.au, you can see the options. It is all a little impersonal because of COVID, kind of like social distancing, fundraising. But there is nothing social distancing about our programming at 3CR. The mighty programmers and staff have been dishing up great programs to get you through. Today, to celebrate Reconciliation Week, we are going to feature songs from from Kuchu Edwards, uh, from a lovely webinar put on by Marinda Art Centre on Thursday. Even with the COVID constraints, there have been a lot of events online to inspire and educate. In fact, I got to uh, listen to something about uh, the astronomy, uh, First Nations astronomy the other day. It was great. The week runs from May the 26th, sorry day, to June the 5th, Mabo Day. That's next week. In today's program, first we're going to go down to Gippsland, stopping at Morwell for a word with Wendy Farmer from Voices of the Valley to talk about the end of the Hazelwood Power Station, but more particularly the end of the court cases against the companies behind the runaway fire and its effects in 2014 that burnt for 40 Five days and still affects residents today. We hear from the far north of uh, Gippsland, uh, northeast of the state, with the uh, fourth dispatch from our friends in Goongarra, East Gippsland. We move closer to home with the uh, fight brewing over the threatened Preston market and a friendly word from Port Phillip Council, which is offering arts rescue package to help art workers through COVID. Kevin dishes it out with a week to remember, and Don Sutherland assures us that Sally McManus from the ACTU has not moved to the dark side with the LMPs carry on about a second accord. If the last item sent a shiver up your spine, let's calm ourselves with a bit of Kutcher Edwards. A song called Marayiri. Marayiri in my language, the Mati Mati language, uh, means I never. So uh, we'll get into it, my dear brother. Marayiri, folks.
to the little twing at the end there. Hey, Daniel. That's it. You're on to the end of breakfast with Annie. The fire in the hazel wood, open cut, 
raged for 45 days, was dangerously close to consuming Morwell and sent toxic smoke across the region, terrifying residents and slowly killing some. The Supreme Court ruling recently uh, lays responsibility for the endangering of workers in the community at the feet of corporations who remove safety equipment because of the expense of upkeep, leaving a hazard waiting to ignite. I spoke to Wendy Farmer about the court case outcome. Wendy found her political voice during the campaign to have the local community heard during those terrible days and is a founding member of Voices of the Valley. The um, Hazelwood Towers uh, fell yesterday, but uh, the effects of the fires from 2014 are still going, aren't they? Um, look, the health impacts of the, those fires in 2014 are definitely still going and, you know, there's are still people that haven't recovered and people still getting sick. Yeah, I, I noticed on Voices of the Valley uh, website that uh, you actually have a section about deaths caused by that event still up there. That's right, isn't it? That is correct. So the inquiry found, um, the inquiry after the Hazelwood Mine Fire found that when they took out weather conditions and everything else, there were quite possible that 13 people died during that fire from just the smoke. The problem with someone dying from a fire like that is you can't identify which person died from the fire. It's not like a car accident where, you know, four people are in a car and three get killed. Um, so, you know, the, the heart attack that happened was a possible possibility that it happened from the fire or of natural cause or other natural causes. So it's really hard to define, but we did see a large increase of deaths during that time. Yeah, uh, findings from the uh, Supreme Court uh, ruling recently that uh, they uh, agreed that uh, the company's actions had actually uh, contributed to endangering people's lives and environmental destruction. Uh, but they were only given $1.56 million fine uh, which uh, is a minuscule in relation to the actual costs, even financial costs. Oh, absolutely. So I guess we'll clarify that, though, um, because there were actually two court cases. There was one held by the EPA, uh, sorry, by the EPA, and one by WorkSafe. So the WorkSafe um, found them guilty on ten charges. And they were basically in the fact that they knew the risk but actually didn't take precautions to protect the workers or the community. In that one, they were um, fined $1.56 million for those 10 charges. Then then the next case, which was the EPA, they were um, charged on 12 cases. So there were actually four, four operators charged. Um, so three, three charges each to the four operators. They were charged um, for basically polluting, causing pollution, and the health impact it had caused to not just the workers but the community outside the mine. Each company there was charged $95,000. Thank you for the clarification. I was a bit confused because there were two elements to that. And um, it's... Uh, they are actually minuscule amounts of money in comparison to the actual costs. But is it a landmark that uh, they were actually charged and found guilty for these offences at all? I think as far as a um, corporation, 
Yeah, absolute landmark. It's the first time that both EPA and WorkSafe have taken a case like this on. And as we know, they won it as well, but it was their first case. So it was a real push by the community to have their companies actually held to account for what they'd done to the community and to the workers. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, I know that when I first met you, uh, this was a big personal uh, uh, event for you as well because it put you onto the political stage, really. Uh, it gave, I mean, it's called Voices of the Valley. It gave people a voice, didn't it? Well, that's it. Before that, um, you know, we had worked together, basically the power stations and the communities, just knowing that they were in our backyard but not really being involved in what happened. And I think it was a big wake-up call to our community or for quite quite a few in our community that, hang on a minute, aren't these people looking after us? We just assumed that the companies were doing the right thing and would protect us at, you know, basically all costs, which you would think companies do. Well, of course, we found out that was, that's very different and especially sitting in those court cases that, in fact, they knew the risk. It was too costly. And in the end, the community were the risks that they were prepared to take. We were the collateral damage of that industry. Yeah, it's amazing because uh, the actual open cut was only uh, a six-lane highway between uh, that open cut and Morwell, a significant uh, population. And uh, like you said, they'd taken uh, taken away the reticulation uh, water uh, system because, like you said, it it was too expensive for them to maintain. Yes, so the actual homes were 200... The closest home is 200 metres to the mine. The mine is 19 kilometres wide and your city buildings, just the tops of the tallest buildings would um, sit out of that mine. It's 200 metres deep. So just to give your viewers a little bit of a idea of what that looks like, it's massive. You know, the water reticulation had been removed from the northern batters, which was closest to the community, knowing that there was a risk, knowing that there was a possibility they couldn't get water there, they didn't have enough water in the northern batters. Of course, it was a terrible day and there are a lot of fires everywhere else, but you've got to open view open fuel you need to take responsibility for your open fuel uh, the other thing is it brings into the bigger issues that um uh, lots of people have over the years have been employed <coughs> excuse me employed by the sec and then it went into private hands uh but um it was the economic lifeblood uh to the area for a very long time um it really uh, it brings into uh, focus the costs that are not actually put on the balance sheet. Look, that's right. And I mean, you know, the people of Latrobe Valley are very proud of the history of the power stations and, you know, what they have provided, not only for the Latrobe Valley, not only for the financial and the wellbeing of the community, but actually for the state of Victoria. If you really look at it, <laughs> Latrobe Valley has, you know, created the state's power to make Melbourne what it is today. Um, so the, while the community is extremely proud of what they've produced, they also understand that that is changing. And when I say that's changing, the move away from coal, the move away from, you know, fossil fuels, what does that leave a community that is linked to 
basically their identity is fossil fuels. What is happening? What is tell us about what you what you people are doing? What's going on for you guys? Look, there's a lot of um since the um 2014 um mine fire and I don't I don't want to make this political either, but you know we had the state government step in and say that they would listen to our community, they would work with our community. There has been a lot of money thrown into the community. Um, there's been our employment rate dropped 4% or it was around 4% before COVID. So, of course, COVID's changed everything. Um, but, you know, that was pretty incredible over those six years to see the employment, the high em- employment rate that we've had drop. So there has been a lot of um, money and jobs thrown into the area. There's still a lot happening. We've got a... Um, GovHub being set up in Latrobe Valley. We've, but in saying that, there's been things that have happened that have not been good as well. So there's been money given to big companies that in the end have not um, relocated or set up or done the right thing by our community as well. But I think we can't always look at those negatives when things happen because that happens all over the state or all over the world where companies will take a bit of money and say, we're going to do this, but actually don't do it. Because once again, they're private companies um, and often they're in it for the money. Has the community uh, become more involved in uh, being on the direct the steering committees that are going on? Um, so look, community has really stood up and made a push for the changes to happen in Latrobe Valley. I believe we're a much more connected community than we were before the fire. We're more engaged in what is happening and we want to be involved in decisions that are being made. And I think that's been the really positive of the community, that the community can see or start seeing that there is a future, but in that future they can be involved in what happens. Mm. And that their children have a future too, I guess. Oh, absolutely. So, of course, we can't. <laughs> the children aren't making the decisions. So, you know, those adults need to engage and actually be involved. But we do leave a better future for our children, our grandchildren. Yeah, and and I know that uh, places like Earthworker, uh, it's a cooperative. That that's uh, an interesting development for down there as well, isn't it? It is a great development, and you know they're manufacturing now in Morwell, and it took them a long time to get off the ground, but. Um, you know, that's that's one of the success stories. So there have been many success stories in Latrobe Valley as well. As I said, that unemployment rate dropped about four points pre-COVID, you know, which was pretty big for the Latrobe Valley that's always had that really high unemployment. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty remarkable. It's amazing. And it sounds like it's uh, a lot of it has been to do with uh, uh, community uh, taking the reins and uh, refusing to lie down. Oh, absolutely. I think, um, it, you know, it shows Latrobe Valley sets the example that any community can actually take their power back in their community, be involved and redesign what, what happens. You know, even yesterday, um, as those towers were being, the stacks were being um, demolished, um, the conversation there of, you know, well, some people were really sad that the um, chimney stacks were um, coming down. Others understood that it needed to come down and others were saying, this is our next step. This is our moving forward to what is next for the Latrobe Valley. Oh, just as an aside, do you does the community see any of that money that these people would find? <laughs> the, the money from the fines? Yeah. 
No, no. At this stage, there's been no commitment to have any of that money put in back, put back into the Latrobe Valley. Um, it would have been great for both EPA and WorkSafe to say that any fines would have gone back into the Latrobe Valley community, even if it was a community, pro, you know, a community project, um, and you know, possibly a renewable energy project to actually show that this fight that we've had has actually benefited the, the community as well. Hmm. Thanks. Saying that, of course, it has benefited the community because, you know, that we have held a major corporation to account for what they've done. Yeah. And I think that can never be forgotten, the, the energy the community have put in to make this company accountable for what they've done. Many of you will be familiar with 3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser. It's when you, our listeners, literally keep the station going with your generous donations. It's a vibrant and busy time each June at the station and an all-in effort from our volunteers, staff and supporters. But in 2020, under the COVID-19 restrictions, we need to do things a little bit differently. So stay tuned for our June Station Appeal. It'll be online, on point, and be asking those of you who can to make a donation to keep 3CR alive. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. Hi, this is Fiona, back again with another dispatch from East Gippsland. This week we have an interview with Cheryl Jacoby and Sarah Bailey who were just about to expand Gippsland Pearls, a lakes entrance gourmet mushroom and escargot caviar business which backs onto the Colcahoon State Forest when the January bushfires hit. They were starting the cafe and the off-leash dog park bringing people to this amazing place they have and here's what happened when the fire came. Tell me about the dog park and the Gippsland Pearls. Gippsland Pearls came first. So Gippsland Pearls we created with the vision of being sustainable, both for us personally but environmentally, have an income and to employ people. But we want to be an employer and we want to do something for the community. The opportunity came up for us to put in for a grant through Pick My Project and we got it and that became the dog park. And the dog park just brings people out here because where we are, which in your travels, (laughs) trying to find us, we're out of town. So it's difficult for people to come, you know, unless there's several reasons. So now we've got the dog park, we're going to have farm tours, we've got the snails, we've got the mushrooms, we've got it all. You've got snails? Yeah, that open door you went past is the farm. But um, we don't eat the snails. Our snails produce eggs and we process that and it's a beginning project, it's still micro, escargot caviar, so we create caviar from their eggs. Labour-intensive, I would imagine. And, And it was deliberate. We deliberately picked really labour-intensive products so that we have reason to employ a broad spectrum of the community. Our primary goal isn't to be like millionaires and produce bigger and better than everyone because globally we produce enough food. What we want to do is create a story and create an artisanal food, a niche food, that actually has a story and has some sort of ownership. So everyone that eats it, everyone that buys it, actually is part of that story. 
that's that's kind of where we're heading. Do you get funding through agribusiness? We're actually not big enough, not old enough. We're going to be old enough soon. In May, we will be two years old as a business. And then we can start looking at that we've got longevity. We're in here for the long haul. We're plugging away at it. Um, and then hopefully funding will come available, particularly as this region's had a real setback. If we can get some funding, then we can tip us over the edge to, all right, let's, let's really do this. So at the moment it's just me and occasionally a casual person comes in to help me with the snails. But, yeah, it's very micro at the moment. You're, you're at the point of expansion. We, we were at the point of expansion, actually, before the fires. Fires have kicked our butt in that we put a lot of resources and a lot of time and a lot of effort into planning to have this as a cafe, to have farm tours, to move ourselves with the mushrooms, complement the dog park, which helps bring people to the area and people can have a coffee and that there's more reason for people to be here. The fires came and we had to close the business down completely. Snails went into shutdown and they just survived. Thankfully, that's how snails survived. They shut down. The mushrooms we've had heavy losses on. Our production has gone to zero. And the cafe, which we were going to employ someone, we'd lined up someone for 20 hours a week and we were going to do all this amazing stuff. (laughs) And the week that she was going to start, the fires started hitting. So we disbanded. We went, well, it's not the season for it. You can't invite people out to a property like this because we've got two sides of us with the Cahoon State Forest and if the fire fire gets into there, basically we're sitting ducks. We had to just shut all that down and not do it at all. Then when we started going, all right, well, we're going to go back, what does that mean? Globally, mushrooms are grown in single-use plastic bags. That's how they're grown. If they're commercially grown, 90% of the species are grown in single-use plastic bags. Our pledge before the fires was to minimise that and to grow our own techniques in growing in compostable packaging. Before starting back, we had to re-establish, well, do we want to continue? If we do, do we want to do we want to actually continue the way we were, and that is continue to buy in substrate, colonised substrate to grow the mushrooms in their single-use plastic bags? And we decided no, it's better to actually be really small and develop the technique of growing in compostable packaging, and then expand from there and not go back into the path of single-use plastic bags. So. Fires have had a massive hit and, you know, here we are. We didn't get burnt out, very grateful for that, but we were ground to a halt. Now we've reassessed, we've gone, all right, well, we do it this way and be sustainable and suck it up. So it's increased your resolve? It's more than increased our resolve because the fires are 100% due the severity of them, not the fires, but the severity of the fires is 100% um, a, a changing climate. And I and Sarah, my partner, are very committed to 
really trying to minimise our carbon footprint. So we're doing all sorts of things personally to try to minimise that, but as a business, it's really important that we don't keep buying in plastics. If there's an alternative, even if it's a hard plastic that you can use again and again, if there's an alternative to to use that rather than the other. Hmm. You said it really hit you, you stopped production. Can you tell me how... The Bruthen fire was 20 kilometres away. Um, the fire was burning at times through the night, which is unusual, up to 26 kilometres in the night. We are in a very, very high-risk property. The CFA have said they won't come out here to us because it's such a narrow, long driveway with beautiful bush. We have stunning bush here. But one of the downsides of bush is in Australia it does burn so we have to leave early. We can't have public out here if we're under threat or at risk. We're closed for total fire ban days and if there's risk of fire, we, we have to get out. In doing that, we had to just turn everything off and just leave. Of the 14 key days, we were out for eight of them. So you had to close down production? Three solid weeks, because we didn't know when it was going to happen again, when we were going to be told, hang about, there's a problem, get out. So did the mushrooms survive? No. no. You lost so all that? We lost a lot. We lost a lot. Um, our, because the rooms heated up, because the mushrooms need to, to get consistency in production, you need it all um, environmentally controlled. And because of that and we shut it all up. So you've got to start all over again. Basically, yeah, which is why we come to the conclusion that we needed to really take a punt on ourselves. The stuff that we've learnt in the last 18 months about mushrooms, can we take the single-use plastics out and actually go, all right, let's let's do this. It's it's the hard road initially. It will be 100% the right thing to do, but it is not the easy thing to do. The easy thing to do is to buy in single-use plastic bags and just pump it out. And honestly, we could fill that shed up, no worries, if we just did let's grow and expand and let's just pump this out. But there's something more important in life than just pumping things out. So that's where we went. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Darabin Councillor Gatano Greco and many community members are very worried about the recent turn of events at the most recent Darabin Council meeting when a motion was passed that did not throw the council weight behind the protection of the iconic Preston Market. Not only that, the Green Councillor motion appears to say that the market is important but that the heritage building could be demolished and another market built in a corner plot of the land made ready for developers to build 14-storey towers. I spoke with Gatano for his views on what many feel is an unspeakable assault on community values. Let's begin with uh, your motion to council in regards to the Preston market. 
Can you tell us what your uh, motion okay. was? Okay, look, my motion was essentially, um, it was a long motion, but essentially what the motion said um, was that the, that the market uh, should not be relocated to, um, to, another, to another site for where it is at the moment. Right? And, that the, um, and also what my motion essentially said, the other two points were, um, is that, the, um, that, that we should indicate some height limits over the site, uh, mandatory height limits over the site. And thirdly, my motion said was that um, we needed a heritage overlay, but a heritage overlay with teeth that, that actually spells out what we are protecting about the market. Yeah, so obviously what's at uh, issue here is that you had already, uh, there'd been discussion about developments at over over the uh, existing um, heights, is that right? Yeah, there, there was lots of discussions. What, what, there were discussions about, um, you know, about the whole site and uh, what ought to take place on that site. And mind you, we have to be mindful of the fact that that, this, that the market and the site is privately owned. It's not owned by the council or it's not owned by the state government. It's actually on private land. So when things are on private land, all that councils can do is to try and put in planning controls that actually regulate and, and help determine what can be built on that particular site. And so things like uh, planning controls over the heights and also planning controls that encourage and um, that that if there are buildings on there that are of a heritage value, that those buildings on, on a particular side are protected. So they're the sort of things that council uh, needs to needs to do, uh, needs to advocate on in relation to um, the, the Preston market. And could I just add another point there because there's a bit of complicated story is that whilst the council does not have direct power in imposing those um, restrictions or those planning controls, those planning controls are going to be written up by the Victorian Planning Authority. So what we did last Monday at the meeting is that we basically said to the planning authority, hey guys, when you write up your planning controls for this particular site, um, we're not fussed about the whether the market gets relocated or not. And also guys, we're not fussed about uh, what heights uh, are built uh, and what sort of towers are built on on that um, on that site? Why is it so important that the uh, Preston Market st stays where it is? Well, it's important for a couple of reasons. One is that it's a it, the market's been there for fifty years. Uh, most recently, a heritage report has confirmed that the market is of local heritage significance, and it's of local heritage significance for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is is that architecturally the building is considered to be important because of some of the features, particularly around its roof, the way the roof was designed, was quite innovative for the um, late 60s and was built in 1970. Um, also, it's, it's of significance because of the layout of the market. Also, it's considered to be significant. Um, um, it's just the, 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 the Preston market is the, is the second... Uh, is considered only second to Victoria Market in terms of heritage significance. And the other significant aspects of it are um, is that is that the market 
represents um, a lot of social and cultural values of, of the community. Um, it's a market where it's seen waves of immigration and come through it. It's a market which has a very distinctive working class um, uh, feel and ambience about it. And 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 the other reason why it needs to be kept is simply because a lot of people in the area and outside the area love the market and yeah. they want to see the market continue on for another 50 years. It, it wouldn't it'd be, uh, wouldn't be going too far to say that it's a beating heart of the place. It's in a location uh, that people feel comfortable with. Exactly right. And, um, and that, that area there where the market is, it's called the market precinct. Why it's called the market precinct is because you've got, um, you know, you, you've got uh, a very important uh, market on the site, which is one of the uh, north of uh, the city, it's one of the only markets that exists. A lot of the other markets have just gone, have just gone by the wayside. If you think of um, Mini Ponds Market, uh, the Brunswick Market, all those markets have all gone by the wayside. The Preston Market continues on. What the Heritage Report also says that the market is very much intact. Uh, yes, it needs a, a facelift, but not a facelift that where you just um, you just relocate the market and build it into um, the side of the site, um, and um, and that you just you rebuild a market which does not have the same vibe, the same sense that the Preston market has because of where it is and because of the building of of where it is. Oh, and also I suppose the many years and many people that have actually contributed to its uh, present state of being. Spot on. Look, I remember as a kid, you know, I, I come from a family of fruiterers. My, my, my parents were immigrants. My father was a fruiterer, not at Preston Market, but he had fruit shops and other places. And ever since over 50 years ago, when we moved into um, Darabin, uh, you know, he would take me to the market on Saturday mornings, you know, and, um, and uh, as a little kid. And then as, a, as an adult, when my father became a little bit frail, I would actually help him to go to Preston Market uh, because, you know, that's where his ambience was. That's where the feel and smell and atmosphere of a market really is. Now, if you relocate, you know, you can't relocate the vibe, feel, atmosphere of a market and put that into a, a new building. It just, it's nonsensical. It does not make sense. And, and obviously why the builder wants to put the market in a, uh, wants to relocate the market they want to relocate the market because at the moment where the market is, is right smack centre on the site. That limits their um, building and development potential. By shifting the market to one side of the site, it's open slather for them. Open slather. Then they can build uh, as much and as high as they want to go. Let's get to the actual um, controversy that's come out of the actual... Uh council meeting. I mean, uh, there's yep. uh, been some uh, sort of uh, in their sensible voices, people going, oh, look, you're just being too dramatic. It, it doesn't mean that we're going to get rid of the market at all. Uh, you know, da 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 But in actual fact, fork-tongued. Well, fork-tongued's a, a good way to say that because we all got elected on the council in 2016, right? Nearly all the councillors, if you go back to their election material, all said, we want to save this market. Market's beautiful. We love the market. We want to save the market. From then, 
we did some good things. We rejected some planning applications for the market, but then unfortunately got upheld at VCAT. And, you know. But from then, right, till last Monday, right, there's been uh, basically, even though the councillors are saying that they still want a market, not the market. Now they're saying that they want a market on the site. Right? So from from being elected on the basis that we're going to save the market and keep the market and we love the market, they've come to the point where they're saying, oh, but, yeah, but the market sort of, you know, we want to keep a market there, but it doesn't have to be where it is. We can actually just, uh, you know, like almost like a, like a building block set, we can just shift it over here and rebuild it over here in a little corner or in a little or on the side strip of the um, of you know facing the street and things like that. So there's been a real, I believe, turnabout by by cousins. Now they're entitled to have their views, but they need to come out and say that are they for the relocation of the market and explicitly say this, or for keeping the market where it is. And, um, and 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 that's what and and because that is the issue of question. Now, I I've said that council um, should not relocate the market, and that we should communicate that strongly to the VPA, because relocating the market, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand that when you relocate something, it means that you're going to demolish what's already there. So relocation for me means the demolishment of the market as we know it. And I won't stand for that. Also, uh, it's interesting that it's a Greens Council motion. Actually, I'm flabbergasted because of that. I'm absolutely flabbergasted because of that. Because I would have thought that um, um, Green councillors that are um, about um, preservation, about conservation about um, uh, maintaining um, you know, community and social heritage, right? have uh, 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 some of those green councillors, well, all of, the, all, of, all of our green councillors on the council, have come to the conclusion that, you know, um, what's the problem of relocating the market? To be fair to them, their argument is, from what I've understood, because I've tried to really understand why are they, their argument is, well, um, the city is growing. There's a population push in the city. Where do we, where do we build um, housing to accommodate the population increase? The best place to build housing is around transport hubs like railway stations and things like that. Therefore, because the market is right at the at the at the doorstep of of Preston Station, that we have to encourage um, we actually have to encourage development there. That's one of the arguments that, that they have been put in. Uh, the other argument that has been put forward is that um, is that you know that's the most convenient um, um, place in order to have some um, urban urban den- density, and that uh, and like that we can uh, we can ensure that we can house house people. And my argument is, and what what the community's argument is, is that uh, look, we're not against development, but you, you should not start. From the from the premise that you have to knock down the market and relocate it, if if you want to develop around the area, if the the, the, the owners and the developers want to develop it around the area, where they can develop around the, the periphery of the market and leave the footprint of the market there. 
and um, and, and that's what um, the community is saying. And also the community is saying is that the developers, when they bought the site, they didn't just buy a site. They bought Preston Market. And um, and as a result of that, uh, why are we considering the, the relocation of the market? Uh, so it's become... Uh, or even entertaining the idea of it. Yeah. So it's become uh, the council versus the community? Are you getting a lot of support? Oh, look. There's three and a half thousand people almost on the Saved Our Preston Market Facebook page. One, that group was existing since, that group has been existing since um, 2015, uh, uh, right? And, and just in the last week, what I've been told is that the membership of that Facebook page has just grown by about five or six hundred people, right? That's how outraged people are. The other community organisations that are against the relocation of the market are, are the um, Darabin Appropriate Development Association, which is a, a local activist group looking at development issues in our city, and they've been opposed to the relocation of the market. Other groups that are against the relocation of the market is the Darabin Progress Association, which is a local activist group um, looking at social justice and, and other council-type issues. They are opposed against the market. The other group that's opposed against the market is the, is the Darabin Ethnic Communities Council, which is an organisation that represents, it's an umbrella organisation of uh, ethnic community organisations within the city of Darabin, and they are opposed against the market because of the of the multicultural and diversity values that the market has. Even the Ethnic Communities Council of Victoria have expressed concerns about uh, about the relocation of the market and maintaining the market for its uh, social and cultural heritage values. So there's a whole list of organisations, apart from the community, individual members of the community, that are outraged at the council even entertaining or suggesting to the uh, to the Victorian uh, Planning Authority, you know, that relocation could be an option. Why have they suddenly changed their minds and uh, gone in this direction? Well, we, we need to ask them. We, we really need to ask them. And they need. And, they, and I've said, I've called them out, and they need to come clean with the community and explicitly say what their reasons are of why they want the market, why they're entertaining the idea of the market being relocated. They have to spell that out. Now, I've tried to sort of understand and, and, and try to interpret some of their rationing. Uh, but if they have other reasons, uh, they need to spell out. One of the other reasons that they say, which is a cop-out, say, well, councillors, it's not our decision. It's the, it's the VPA that makes the decision. They're the ones that set up the planning rules. And so we really don't have a say on that. Yeah, but we do have a say about what we want the, the planning rules to look like. Okay, so what the do you... The other argument is, is that... Yep. Oh, go on. What's their other argument? No, the, 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 the other argument is, is that they say, oh, but we're agreeing to a to a heritage overlay. We're, we're asking, we're requesting that the minister and the VPA, you know, slap on a heritage overlay um, in relation to the market and the site. But the but the point is is that whilst they have said that and they said that we're doing uh, we're 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 promoting the most strongest um, um, you know uh, uh, conditions possible, right? What they're not saying is that 
what that heritage overlay should be saying and spelling out what the heritage overlay should be protecting. They are not explicitly saying that the heritage overlay should say in it that the market needs to stay where it is, that the market building should not be demolished and and should not be relocated. So what they're doing, my interpretation of it, and I stand to be corrected, my interpretation of it is that they're saying, yes, heritage overlay, yeah, using that as a headline, but then the substance of it, they're silent on the substance of it and leaving then what it gets incorporated into the heritage overlay, leaving that up to the Victorian Planning Authority or to the Minister. Now, that's a cop-out. That's a complete cop-out because if you're, if you're saying, Minister, we need a heritage overlay, the next thing we need to say is this, this is what we want in the heritage overlay. I know that there's a petition. Uh, is there anything that you want people yep. to, to, to do if they want to express their opinions? Oh, look, yes, of course. One is I want people to come to the next council meeting on, on Tuesday, the 9th of June at 6 o'clock. And uh, fortunately on, on council, people have the opportunity to, to fire questions to, uh, to the council. Questions are directed to the mayor. People are entitled to ask three questions and, uh, and make their statement and make themselves heard there at the council meeting with, with the councillors in front of them and say why or why not they think that the market should be um, retained. Six o'clock, six o'clock, Tuesday, the 9th of June at the Preston Town Hall. And the other thing is, is that affected by uh, COVID? No, people uh, being in close... It is, but because we have the meeting in, because we have the meeting in the, in the Town Hall, it's a, it's a big area and, and council will be respecting the social distancing um, restrictions. Okay, good. Thank you very much for talking to me. Yeah. And the other thing too that people can do if they can't get to the council meeting, they can actually um, write um, to the to the to the mayor and to the councillors um, about what they feel in relation to the market being relocated or not. Hi, this is Liz Stringer and you're listening to the Mighty 3CR on 855 AM and digital radio, 3cr.org.au. Port Phillip Council, home of the St Kilda Film Festival, prides itself as a welcoming and supportive place for art workers and as such has announced an arts rescue package to help support members of its creative community hard hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. The $180,000 pool of funds is set to complement the amount put up recently by Creative Victoria. I spoke to Councillor Tim Baxter for some details. Can you give me an idea of uh, why the Council thought it was such a good idea to create the uh, arts rescue package in Port Phillip? Uh, yeah, for sure. Look, um, Port Phillip is, uh, is, is a massive centre for... Um, the arts and culture and, and creative industries uh, sort of sector. There are um, more people working in that sector and and and, uh, and involved in that area that are living in, and working in Port Phillip than uh, almost anywhere else uh, in Victoria. Uh, and they've been hit incredibly hard by uh, this pandemic. So it's uh, it's really important that uh, that we do something to um, support not just the people but um, the the art that they create and the 
the um, the really special place that Port Phillip has for that uh, that work. It's a reasonable amount of money too, isn't it? It's uh, $180,000 uh, and it's got some specific aims, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, look, I mean, whenever I look at that amount of money, all I think is that it's not enough. But uh, certainly uh, when when we're, we're struggling with trying to provide um, support to a number of different sectors and also to make sure we balance our books, we're, we're doing what we can. Um, but really, this is... Uh, it, it, this isn't just this isn't just charity. Where obviously we are we are investing in um, a vibrant uh, sector that we we know provides massive benefits to our community, um, and, uh, and and will give some benefit to us as well. Well, uh, so uh, there's uh, about thirty thousand uh, dollars being um, allocated for say acquisitions of artworks. So can you tell us about that idea? I mean, it's broken up into various parts. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the 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 art acquisition thing. Look, that's basically a, a win-win situation. Obviously, um, we we commission uh, uh, artwork that that gets uh, created um, through this process. We don't directly commission it, but through this process, artwork gets created. Um, that there's a uh, uh, an independent. Um, panel of, of uh, very dedicated and, and smart people who will uh, choose what um, gets acquired, uh, and that stimulates the the uh, industry. And we end up with uh, some fantastic art uh, in uh, holding it in trust for the community. So um, the community benefits um, that we can we can hold on to that art, we can exhibit that art, we can sell that art. But um, you know, rather than simply uh, give money away, which is also useful. In this case, it's uh, we can actually get something um, directly for the community ownership as well. Then there's uh, an element of supporting uh, development of online online um, uh, resources to support uh, artists' work. Yeah, absolutely. So I think what we found through this pandemic is that those artists that were able to um, adapt and exhibit their work um, online and, and find really creative and, and, and easy ways through digital means for people to view their work and, and disseminate their work um, have done really well. And we just want to make sure that um, that, that option is open to, to as many people as possible and that we can support um, people with that. So obviously virtual reality and 360 video technology is not just something that would be useful uh, during a pandemic, it's something that could be useful ongoing. It allows you to reach international audiences. Um, it just extends your reach so much. We know we have that capability within our municipality with um, a number of VR studios uh, in the area. So it's really just about putting smart people in touch with other smart people and investing in that, in that growth. And is that, is that uh, potentially a way of uh, uh, enabling art workers uh, to um, create income, to put bread and butter on their tables and make sure that they can pay their rent? Is that what you're aiming to do? Yeah, well, look, I mean, basically, the the wider uh, an audience that artists can reach, yeah, the, the, the greater their possibility of being able to uh, make a living uh, uh, out of that. Um, we obviously can't guarantee... Uh, a living for artists, so that's that, that's going to be based on, on on the quality of their art and how well they can communicate it. But we can we can help with um, with getting that out there and making sure that people see some of the um, the amazing art that uh, gets produced 
uh, in the city of Port Phillip and by city of Port Phillip residents. You also have uh, some money targeting specifically uh, First Nations people uh, because that is a, str- a, a um, particular importance in Port Phillip's uh, view of the world, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, our um, our arts uh, strategy, um, uh, which I... <laughs> Policies. I've forgotten the name of, but our, our art strategy um, has has a real emphasis on um, on the importance of uh, first peoples um, art uh, within our, uh, our our art uh, ecosystem and and how important that is for uh, for local um, First Nations or Bunurong uh, artists to be able to um, produce work and, and, and get that out for people to see. So what's the process? What's the actual process that an artist would have to go through in order to be able to access some of these, these funds? Yeah, well, look, in terms of the, uh, in terms of the grants, um, they would, uh, they, you can easily just go to um, our website and people can apply for the grants through the website. Um, that the, they're, they're open now. Uh, and uh, applicants can apply for up to um, and between four thousand dollars and eight thousand dollars, depending on the on the stream. Um, there's obviously a uh, there's there's three streams there. One is a um, uh, uh, local grants for disability and deaf arts groups. There's the one you mentioned about the First Peoples uh, grants, uh, and there's the Arts Response grants, which is a general grant stream um, and so uh, people can yeah go, go on the website and find a way to apply um, uh, for that that'll be uh, we've made it quite easy to find uh, and uh, the applications will close at 12 midnight on Monday the 8th of June so it is something that we're hoping to get in really quickly um, so it is it is a tight time frame but we're wanting to basically get this money out into that arts community as quickly as possible uh, and also um I noticed that uh, you've the council has also uh, underwritten the uh, St Kilda Film Festival. I mean, you've always been an important sponsor, but uh, eighty thousand dollars so it can do the festival online. Uh, the role that arts plays in uh, the identification of Port Phillip is in, why is it local council business? It's it's our community. I think that um, local councils have to represent their community and, and, and make sure that what's special about their community is something that's being put front and centre. Um, we know that the city of Port Phillip um, is made up of areas that have long been uh, arts and culture hubs, not just St Kilda, but, um, uh, you know, Albert Park South, Melbourne and uh, Elwood and, and Port Melbourne all have... Um, these thriving uh, sort of uh, businesses and, and 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 local artists that uh, artists that are dealing with um, uh, with creating these these beautiful creative uh, works. So um, that that's it's just something that we feel is is really important. It's not something we we particularly think about all too much. We know that we're known for this, and and we want to continue to be known for it. And we know that that's our community, and we want to support them. So when it comes to the um, the, the film festival. Um, you know, we've been doing the film festival for you know decades, and and that's something that uh, we wanted to keep doing. And given that it's something that translates so well to an online medium, even though I personally love seeing films in person, um, it's it's we we figured that that was something that we could uh, do really quickly to make sure that uh, people are seeing the films because that's 
the really important thing. A weak solidarity breaky team list, but when, as the as True Blue was the acknowledged reconciliation week by largely ignoring it, it took a transnational behemoth, Rio Tinto the Planet, to celebrate the week by destroying 40 or more thousand years of indigenous rock art and artefacts in the Pilbara, quite legally, of course. Uh, so your, instru- your destruction was approved by the local Terranilius people. Of course not. We, we received approval from the very highest sources in Perth, uh, Terranilius people in Perth. Of course not. What, what's your obsession with these Terranilius uh, things? In fairness, some transnational behemoths offer to move the rock art at their very own expense so they can get at what they want to get at, which, as a preservation policy, does seem to have the odd, fairly obvious flaw. But in this case, there is a delightful little connection to how Terranulius became Terranulius in the first place. His Majesty's invasion of the place, because one of the big shareholders in Rio Tinto, the planet, is Her Most Gracious Majesty, her very self. And she owns everything that's under all that rock art and the land itself anyway. There have been moments when we've thought maybe things will improve, light at the end of the 1988 Bicentenary March and related events in Sydney, and when thousands and thousands of people marched across the Harbour Bridge to celebrate reconciliation. And I may have stumbled upon a key factor in what went wrong. For in a telly news piece about that day, they showed a smiling, little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo back in those dark ages, which explains a lot, perhaps everything. Across the Terranulius continent, when the government was handing $132 billion to caring employers to pay their wages bill for them, JobKeeper, it said it couldn't afford to pay those who missed out, work visa holders, overseas students, casual workers who couldn't prove continuity because they are casual or declared casual by their caring employers, and then discovering its arithmetic was so spot on, it was about 50% wrong, a minor six billion dollar miscalculation. Well, a fortuitous miscalculation for work visa holders, overseas students, casual workers who couldn't prove continuity. Uh, No, sorry, sorry. Well, not really sorry, but it said it couldn't afford to pay those who missed out, many of whom also miss out on are also not eligible for job seeker but are eligible for standing in the ever-growing queues at soup kitchens and other handouts, as long as they practice distancing. Although as they grow, well, no, the reverse, shrink, become thinner, that won't matter. And we assume they won't qualify for job maker, the latest derivation in the job vocabulary, job keeper, job seeker, job maker. Uh, Yes, why all these job variations? Uh, To save our job assume won't qualify and even if they do by the time it comes into being they'll be so weak from starvation and the ravages of the weather they won't be able to make it to wherever they have to make it to anyway and they'll qualify for job bludger putting them on a par with those on job seeker apart from the fortnightly few dollars in their bank accounts if zero in those accounts constitutes account all because many caring employers the people from whom the government takes it's, it's orders, I'm going to say orders, oh, sorry, sorry, seeks advice, couldn't even fill in a form properly, and huge numbers of them declared they had 1,500 employees. 
A statistical anomaly we'd think just may have hit the alert button, prompted the, the odd question, apparently seeing nothing unusual in a small country hairdresser, for instance, employing 1,500 people in a town of about 800. Not that it'll matter much longer, as Big Supremo scuttled them more less than has taken a leap out of former Big Supremo nuclear hawk himself's book, Getting True Blue Aussie Together. Aware that caring employers and lazy avaricious workers are all in it together, a common cause. That common cause then and now to keep wages down in Nuclear Hawks and his big economic guru Paul's solution, having the public purse pick up wage increases and making unions acting as unions illegal. Yes, pay the bosses wages bill, but we're even luckier now because this government's already done that. And the wisest of the wise exponents of the greatest little economic order of them all advise us we must reduce wages or there won't be jobs. Workers will price themselves out of work, leaving us to ponder then who will be doing the work. But the wise advise us they have to slash wages and conditions so they can increase wages in the future. And if the ACTU does not agree with what scuttled them and the caring employers want, it will show the evil unions have not put down their weapons, unlike the government and the caring employers who've put down their weapons and shown their neutral credentials by declaring we must slash wages and conditions to get true blue Aussie together. Keeping his job, or at least keeping his job as we record this, the architect, as they call him, of Her Most Gracious Majesty's Home Country Lockdown Rules, conservative advisor to the most conservative Dominic Cummings and Goings, was in trouble for his goings. But this time he was staying. This time he has no intention of going anywhere. Declaring the guidelines he drew up encouraged people to go out once a day and drive 400 miles across the country, then drive to a community event you didn't attend to see if you're capable of driving 400 miles home again to observe the lockdown. Now, I... No, I think I can safely say we, listener, would have thought that having driven 400 miles for his daily exercise to get there would have indicated he was capable of driving 400 miles in the opposite direction. Still, he knows the rules. He drew them up. Back here in drawing up his solution to climate change, if there is such a thing, announcing his fossil solution to fossil pollution, carbon sequestration, for instance, that is, sticking your head in the sand, Fossils Minister Angus Tailing said, extreme solutions are not going to work. But for those encouraged by that, Angus's interpretation of extreme solutions is renewable energy, that economy destroyer. Because Angus and the team know that fossils are good for the economy and renewables are bad for the economy. So I've got no idea how the renewables get constructed, where that construction material comes from, and then keep producing and providing the power that, well, it must be an economy-destroying miracle, something from nothing. As big a miracle as that lot ever conceding renewables may have an environmental and economic benefit. 
Last week I admitted the week that was has for too long, far too long, concentrated on the unimportant, the not-so-important things in life like industrial relations, uh, climate change and environmental destruction, uh, trained killing, poverty, oppression, exploitation, those sort of irrelevancies. So I thought it time to discuss the truly important. Remember, we celebrated the excitement of Big Brother coming back on our telly screens, a, a lot more celebration than Reconciliation Week has got. And this week, another truly, truly important part of life. And if there's dear little children present, listener, a, a language warning for this next item. Another truly, truly important part of life in the world of reality TV is this spate of home renovation programs, gripping stuff. And the promos show people seeing the renovation for the first time and bursting into tears, goggle-eyed, gasps, deep emotional stuff, always thrilled by it all. Oh, it's magnificent. I can't believe it. And I reckon, to prove they are reality, we need to see a promo with the person opening the door, looking into the room and declaring, Christ, it's shit. Speaking of non-reality, the world's biggest twit U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, was forced to criticise his policy outlet when Twitter corrected one of his manic performances by suggesting it mightn't quite be true that the facts didn't match Donald's assertion, well, or rants, forcing poor Donald to declare Twitter was interfering in the democratic process. Uh, how has it interfered, Donald? It criticised me. Worst criticism ever, ever. Um, how do people interfere in the democratic process, Donald? By not voting for me. Worst non-vote ever, ever. Perhaps celebrating our reconciliation week, another, sorry, maintainer of law and order over in the US of, killed another non-white person by holding him down with a knee in the neck until he was dead. Knowing that when the Afro-American person gasped, I can't breathe, he was lying because you can't trust what these people say, unlike the truth we're bound to get from the local authorities. Oh, and finally, this week, Donald called someone a wacko. Repeat, this week, Donald called someone a wacko. That is, Donald called someone else a wacko. Good morning. The final piece on Solidarity Breakfast this morning is a chat with Don Sutherland about the monsters cavorting across the industrial relations landscape using COVID as an excuse and let loose by our fearless leader, that, that tubby-tubby only a mother could love. Annie, as we've just been saying to each other, um, there is so much happening at the moment and it is multidimensional, but there's also a common theme. So, for example... Uh, I, for my sins, uh, I take a look at the Australian Financial Review every day. This morning's Financial Review was utterly fascinating. The Australian Financial Review is essentially what us budding shop, shop stewards in the 1970s were taught to read because that's where the bosses talked to each other more uh, directly and uh, more honestly to each other than they do in other parts of the mainstream media. But also, it basically, especially more so these days, it lays out what the political line is for the employers as a class. And the last week or so, well, the last five weeks or so have been fascinating in that respect. Today, of course, the big story is how they get their own heads around what their 
position and tactics will be with regard to Morrison's um, six discussion groups, uh, all with industrial relations themes. And they, and they are uh, enterprise bargaining, uh, casualisation, uh, skills development, greenfields agreements and award simplification and compliance and enforcement. And the employers are still working out exactly how to handle that. And the reason is that um, I think quite deftly, actually, on, on behalf of the union movement, Sally McManus and Michelle O'Neill have positioned themselves so that the government cannot proceed with its plan with at least out at least some discussion with them that is semi-formal. Now, you've only got to have been paying attention for the last 10 years to know that the bosses led by the Business Council and the Australian Industry Group and the mining industry mob uh, already have a very clear log of claims for themselves on those six areas. So in regards to award simplification, for example, they want to uh, get more control over changes to working hours, start and finish times and all that sort of stuff. For employers, it's an ongoing project because remember their ultimate nirvana is the ascendancy again of individual bargaining as expressed in Australian workplace agreements in work choices. They have never ever given up hope that with individual bargaining, statutory individual bargaining uh, ended in adverted commas with the Fair Work Act of 2009, they have never given up hope that one day they will get it back. And so everything we want to do about awards and enterprise agreement making and casuals and so on and, and Greenfield's agreements is to get them closer to that employer nirvana. And the quick point we ought to make about this is that why is industrial relations still a battleground? And Morrison wants to pretend that um, he doesn't want it to be a battleground anymore. Uh, but in fact, it will continue to be so. And the main reason, of course, is that because it's in the workplace where profits are made. Uh, it's where wealth is produced and it's where the employers expropriate that wealth, which is produced exclusively by the workers, of course. But the employers expropriate their share as profits. And that is a struggle at a workplace by workplace level. But it's also a socio-political struggle as we see right now, because what Morrison has concluded is that the existing, the current balance of probability in getting the business-led recovery he wants uh, will not happen unless, uh, simply because um, the ACTU has just got enough residual power to be able to slow it down and frustrate it. And so we have the need for discussion groups in order to make to break that apart. Is that what you think they're doing? Because lots of people think that um, that uh, Sally McManus has gone to the dark side. I think that is entirely incorrect. 
this is this is that is not the case and she has been very clear herself and we should hold her to it of course because the pressures on her will be enormous she has not gone to the dark side of any nonsense from any group in the left that is pushing that should be rejected what she is trying what she has to do is take advantage of an opportunity to the best as she can to neutralise the new business recovery agenda to the very best of her ability as a leader at that level of our movement. That's what she's trying to do, as is Michelle O'Neill. And we don't hear enough for, uh, either from Michelle, who's doing a great job in other uh, on other issues. But it, it, Sally's front and centre on this. And, of course... I mean, people have got to, in the left and in the union, they've got to wake up. Just because the Financial Review or The Age or The Telegraph says that, that Sally is now lockstep in or a friend of Christian Porter's doesn't make it so. Of course they're going to say that. They want us to believe that she is selling us out. And... I think we have to be a lot smarter than that to understand. You see, if let's imagine that, uh, and I think for his own dark purposes, Morrison has worked it out. He does not wish to have a six to 18 month parliamentary battleground over the changes he wants. So he wants to exclude the ALP and the Greens, plus a couple of backbenchers from frustrating his agenda. Now, Sally McManus is no fool. She knows that. But that what that brings into position is that she, on behalf of the working class, is the prime negotiator. She will be strong on principle. I don't think we can doubt that. There has been a blip in terms of ACT principles in my view, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to downplay it, but there's been a blip in regard to the McDonald's agreement. But overall, you cannot criticise her for selling out on anything of significant principle. So she will fight on principle. How much can she will win in practical terms will depend a lot upon the movement uh, as a whole across all of the unions. And some unions will be as weak as dishwater in backing her up, and others will be way above average. We, we who exist at the rank and file level have to get ourselves involved in such a way to ensure that our unions and our mobilisations can, uh, can back her up every step of the way. Negotiations like this are not one just on the force and the correctness of the argument. It's one true power. And we have to mobilise our power in support of the situation. And frankly, I would far sooner have her negotiating the outcome of something like award simplification than um, Albanese and Miles and company. If I could put it as bluntly with COVID-19 every employer association and every employer who can do it will be weighing up 
what can I get out of this that I have been trying to get for 10 years and have so far not succeeded? That's what they'll be doing. And some of them will conclude, no, I don't have the bargaining power to win in this situation. Other employers, either as an employer association of some sort or individually will be saying, yep, I've got them here. And we'll go after them, therefore. And remember that Morrison has supported that through regulation, enabling a 24-hour consultation period instead of seven days if the employer can get the new agenda through uh, enterprise bargaining. Right? So the, every employer will be weighing it up and some will be able to pursue this harsher agenda from their point as it impacts upon workers and others won't. And then the avenue that they use to pursue it may be different from one industry or one employer to another. Now, in response, the, every union has to weigh that up as well. So objectively, right now with nurses, there's a desperate need for their work to take care of people, to keep the society as healthy as it can possibly be in the circumstances. And so uh, there is a desperate need. Now, in most circumstances, that's a great time for them to go on the offensive. But I'm not sure that their overall standing in the community would be as strong if they decided to exercise their objective bargaining power right now. You know, it would be, I think, a big problem for them. And they know that, of course. But, but I bet you many nurses are saying, our day will come. And I hope they are saying that. Going to come a time when they should demand catch up and get it and go for it. And they're in the best position to judge when that might be. When we talk about what's going on, there are other unions who have no bargaining power at all in the current situation and probably are not going to get much more in the future. That's the case for a lot of manufacturing workers. And if you take very basic, the, the beginnings of food production, the workers who do that, who really are on the front line in making this, sure the society can actually do what it has to do every day and night, those workers have very little bargaining power right now, even though there's high demand for their labour. So what they can do... Now, then you go to other industries where the employers have really got their act together and are going on the offence and have worked out they've got a lot of bargaining power and they're going for it. And some unions are able to resist and others are not. And so in between that, there are unions that are saying, well, let, and this is, I think, what was going on in the heads of the NTEU uh, leadership. And I don't just mean the top level leadership, I think at university level as well, is they're saying, how can we get control of this situation before it gets desperately bad? Now, I don't know whether they're right or wrong, but that, I think that's the question they were asking. And therefore, they were trying to work out 
how do they take, a, if you like, a neutralizing measure to minimize the harm? Now, put aside the detail, because I don't know, as I said before, I don't really want to go into it because I don't know enough about it. But that is a, that is a decision that every union leader uh, has to face up to at some stage. Over, you know, if you're going into a 10 or 15 or 20 year time as the leader of a union, you are going to face a time at some point where you don't have a favourable bargaining situation and you have to make a judgment about how you proceed to neutralise or minimise the gains that the employer can make. That's because we live in capital. It's interesting because, uh, in actual fact, the um, majority of the university uh, uh, vice-chancellors of their boards have actually knocked them back anyway because they don't want them... They don't want them to look at their books and they don't want them to be party to their decision-making. As you said, it's capitalism and it's a class war. And, and, they, and, and some of them, I, I'm sure, without knowing, once again, without knowing for sure, but, you know, some of them will be saying, uh, I, can, I can get what I want and what I've been wanting for 10 years by, by negotiating outside of any university as a whole framework. And I'm going to do that and I'll be bloody ruthless when I am. That's what they're saying. Well, it's interesting too that the uh, federal government uh, shows its true colours by extending the um, JobKeeper allowance to private universities but not public universities. Yes, yeah. And they can, and, and, and quite, uh, quite outrageously, they, um, they pull out a technicality to justify it, which is to say, well, you know, it's a different situation because they're already getting government funding and they should be able to make do with that. <laughs> They're government funded. Uh, it's just, you know, as though... Uh, but, no, well, the other thing is uh, uh, what um, Adam Bant said when he was outlining the Greens plan, which is quite an interesting plan for the uh, renewal of Australia... Um, and development of jobs um, that he saw it as being um, as Morrison phoning a friend. That sort of stuff is all well and good in you know the public verbal judo. Uh, I never thought I'd see the day uh, that I would be agreeing very strongly with Richard Miles, who put it a little bit more substantially and quite well. Um, Miles, when he heard about the so-called five uh, policy area discussion groups on industrial relations form um, asked the right questions. He said, quote, when he talks about, when he, Morrison, talks about simplifying awards, what does, what does that mean in terms of the security of workers' employment? What does that mean about the rights that people have in their workplace? All these questions remain very unopened. And when you look at the history, this is the good part, well, the first part was pretty good, but then you get to the crunch, which I think is pretty good. And when you look at the history of Liberal governments engaging in industrial relations form, I think every Australian worker is completely justified in feeling a chill going down their spine. Annie, I think you're quite right to draw attention to uh, the need for a discussion about what Adam Van has put forward on behalf of the Greens. And I think conceptually it's a big step in the right direction from the point of view of workers. However, it does have a bit of the flavour of a cut and paste 
from the American situation. And I do think it has to be Australianized, but it's certainly something that all of us should be taking seriously. Now, alongside of that, when we, there is an alternative to what the government is on about. Now, in essence, as Morrison himself says, he wants to drive a business-led recovery. Now, he's doing that and asking us, the majority of the population, to forget that it was a business-led government that took us into the crisis in the first place. So what Morrison is actually proposing as a business-led recovery is a new version of the formula that has led to the stuff-up. So when we get to the alternatives, the Greens are on the right track. We also have, remember, uh, the United Workers' Union Workers' Plan for Recovery. We now have the Australian Council of Trade Unions coming out with an eight-point plan. So there are at least three substantial proposals, uh, all of which have strengths and weaknesses, but all of which are important steps forward for our movement as a whole and beyond the union movement into uh, positive steps for unemployed workers, both the new unemployed and those who have been unemployed since long before uh, the COVID-19 restrictions and lockdowns, uh, and also for welfare organisations like single mothers and disabled uh, people and so on. So we have the prospect of developing an alternative program that belongs to the people as an alternative to Morrison's. That's it for this morning. We'll go out with another song from Kutcher Edwards. Catch you next week. All things being equal. Cheers for men. Sing for the black and the people of this land. I sing for the red and the blood that's been shed. I sing for the gold of a new year. Young and old Yilale, 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 yilale Hope all you mob out there at Mullum are singing Yilale, 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 yilale I sing unto them Of the most high Leo want to cry Now I'm singing just for you Hey Al, an Oscar So all can recognize All together guys Yilale, yilale Yilale, yilale
singing out there in Wontana. Yulale, 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 yulale. In Ringwood. Yulale, 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 yulale. Let's do it a cappella. Yulale, 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 yulale. Happy Reconciliation Week to you all out there in Maroona, uh, surrounding areas, all you mob at Mullum Mullum Gathering Place, all you people at Arts in Maroondah, join in at 12 o'clock to the Zoom conversation and uh, thanks for the opportunity. Good on yous. Daniel, you want to say cheerio? Oh, thanks everybody. Thanks <laughs> everybody in the room. Thanks everybody in, in Maroondah Arts and, and Mala Mala and, yeah. uh, and everybody tuning in. Um, yeah, and hopefully we'll be physically in front of everybody next yes. year. Yeah, toodaloo. Bye bye. Bye. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.